You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark Towner, President's Weekend. Very exciting. Happy President's Weekend. Happy President's Weekend. The uh, I just want to note for the podcast that we made our predictions, Super Bowl predictions last week, and I called the game and very nearly the score mark. So you owe me, I don't know what you owe me. You owe me dinner, but you owe me so many, you owe me so many (laughs) unpaid dinners that I'm not even going to pretend that you owe me dinner. One more. Add it. Please add it to the account. Guys, so it being President's Weekend, here's my question. Are Washington and Lincoln turning over in their graves? It's, you know, I, I think it's easy to step back and it's it's hard to step back and think about what President's Weekend actually means. Like, it's in honor of our greatest leaders, leaders that created the country, leaders that saved the country. and. If they were alive and could see where we are today, would they be? You guys are the history buffs on the podcast. So what would they think if they looked at where the country is today, Mark? Well, I think they would be disappointed with the discourse, but not necessarily, Howard, as surprised as your question suggests. Let's not forget that for Lincoln, especially in at, at the time of his election, he was even less popular than either of these candidates is right now. Lincoln got elected and half the country quit the country. So he, he would recognize the challenge that, that we have, but obviously be disappointed that uh, all the what are we 150 plus years after the Civil War he fought and won, we are still at war with ourselves. I mean, for anybody, I appreciate you bringing that up, Mark. For anybody who says how bad it is today, we quite literally fought a civil war. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people died in this country. So you know, I there are. As I've said before on this podcast, there are certainly times who have been worse in the United States. There are certainly times that have been better in the United States politics. And, uh, you know, it's the, the tricky part is is trying to figure out, you know, how bad are we doing right now? I feel like that's the question of society these days anyway, is trying to figure out how bad we're always doing. Who's doing worse than somebody else? Yeah, but, uh, I, I, I think the counter that I think they would both be disappointed that we aren't farther along the trajectory. Look, look, Washington's time, well, we fought a war for one thing for our independence. But in the election of 1800, which Towner and I think about every day, every day, Jefferson every day. was elected. There was a convention in Hartford of all the New England states, and they damn near voted to go back to England. So the division in the country is nothing new. 
But I do think both men, and especially Lincoln, uh, I think both men believed that we were on a moral arc that would have taken us farther than we've gotten. I, I don't think it's so much the fact that there's division and rancor in American political life that would astonish them as it is that we just haven't gotten as far as they had hoped we would. It's interesting. I have, I have just a lot of thoughts about that. I, I a couple of things. First of all, I was reading. Tony, you have a lot of thoughts about everything. I have a lot of ahead. thoughts about everything. I, you know, well, so on the first part of Mark's comments, you know, some of my thoughts are, are, you know, we went through just a kumbaya several decades. I mean, no matter how you want to look at like the 80s, 90s, 2000s, especially post 9-11 up until like 2006, 2007, when the Iraq war became became a hot button issue. But we went through from from the late, late 60s through probably 2006, you know, we went through a period of just calm on political fronts for the most part. Uh, the House of Representatives was relatively working. Obviously, we had contract with America in 1996. Uh, you know, some of that calm was brought on by the fact that Democrats had such large supermajorities that there was just nothing. The, the Republicans had resigned themselves to being in the minority in Congress for until the end of time. And, you know, that obviously changed when Congress started flipping back and forth. And and each every two years, it became more and more competitive. Um, but, you know, that being said, Congress is a mess right now, but they have this mess has only come about as a result of really, you know, leadership being challenged on the Republican side, quite frankly. I'm not saying it's good. I don't like it at all. I'm a rules committee, you know, staffer through and through. I don't like leadership being challenged. I like predictability. I like leadership control. I love what Nancy Pelosi did. She's the most authoritarian leader that we've ever had in the House of Representatives since probably. Sam Rayburn, maybe Joe Cannon, the early 1900s. Are so, you like, sure you're not confusing her with Nikki Haley? It was, no, yeah, I just... Pelosi, yeah. You mean Pelosi, not Haley? I mean okay. actual Pelosi in this particular case. <laughs> okay. Like, yeah. I don't know. For I, our listening audience, that was the dig at Towner's party's yeah. candidate. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, okay. well, not my, yeah. not my Trump. But, so. but, but you know, I, I take what you're saying uh, to, to heart, and it's not that we've made no progress since the Republic began or since the Civil War ended. Of course, we have made progress. I think what is at risk now with where we are is the idea of uh, American, not so much exceptionalism. We are an exceptional experiment in the history of the world. We remain that, although although the experiment is in peril, I, I and half the country believe. But I, I think what's at risk is the idea that we have always held in this country of American inevitability, that progress was inevitable, that we were on the march in the new world to a new world, and that every day and month and year was going to be better than what came before. That seems to be potentially stalled, potentially stalled. And I think that would disappoint Washington and Lincoln because I think they believed that there was a an inevitability to this experiment. Although even as I say that, my God, look at what both men had to go through. They were both one bad day away from being hung by the other half of the fight. 
Well, and I mean, this has been a slow, I mean, it's certainly sped up with Donald Trump, but for the most part, this has been a slow downward trend. Two articles I read this week sort of stuck out to me. There was there was one, I'm not even going to remember how to cite it. I apologize because I don't even remember where I read it from. But it basically referred to this is the inevitable sort of downward swing of what started during Vietnam War and Nixon with people not believing in the United States as an ideal nearly as much. And it is it has been on a constant, you know, the the appreciation of the United States as as an ideal ideal that that, you know, American exceptionalism to which, you know, Mark had just referred uh, has been in steady decline since the late 60s, for the most part, or since the mid 60s. There's been uh, inflection points along the way. Nixon's uh, you know, resignation and uh, a number of other things throughout the process. But this seems to be hopefully the low, maybe the low, hopefully the low of of sort of that downward trend of of American idealism. And there's been some spikes, you know, post 9-11 spikes. I mean, you think about George W. Bush having like a 90 percent approval rating post 9-11 because everybody, you know, wanted didn't matter whose president it was. They wanted the president to to address the terrorists and get after it. So, I mean, there are there's a trend line. The second article I read was interesting to me because uh, it actually came out this morning in Politico, and it's an editorial that I thought was fascinating. And it was uh, essentially Democrats finally got to do exactly what they wanted to do with the economy. Do they have buyer's remorse on inflation at this point? And it's a great question. I mean, everything that you know Democrats have wanted to do for a while, economically, legislatively appropriating in, in a way they have gotten the opportunity to do, but they're fighting this malaise about inflation right now uh, in what is otherwise a very good economy, but but except for the fact that prices are up 20 to 25 percent. And so I just I'm fascinated by both of these trend lines that are not positive ones, but, you know, but well, one one more one more note, if I may, Howard and and. I know Towner's trying to return us to the present tense, but I want one more historical note. That was not my intention. I'm happy to go backwards <laughs> still if you want. No, I I think one one thing that is happening, I think, and maybe I am simply projecting, as we all do all day long, just projecting my own view onto the world. But I think we as a country are confronting for the first time in a long time, obviously there was a civil war, but for the first time in a long time, we are confronting the historical fact, unarguable. There are certain facts in, in history, and this is one of them. Empires come and go. And boy, I'll never forget, I know we're going to talk about Gaza a little bit later in this podcast, so I'll never forget standing in Jerusalem looking at the site of uh, King Solomon's temple, you just look at the wall and it is layer after layer after layer of empires that came and went. And someday so will we. And I think we are confronting as a country the question of whether that day is much sooner than any of us thought it might be. But empires come and go. That's the lesson of history. And I think that whatever the results of the November election, there are many people who are worried on, on each side that our time is, is running out. The sands in the hourglass are, are running through. And that is not the period that we all grew up in. 
we all had the absolute luxury and privilege, as you were just reciting, Towner, of growing up in a pretty stable, prosperous, good time for the country. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, you could argue that we are more prosperous certainly now than we were before. You could, you could certainly argue that you know the 2008 economic downturn was far worse. You could argue that the, sure. the dot com sure. bubble. Well, Howard, Howard got period. us out of the 2008 downturn. Let's thank you, him again. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that That's was almost now. as important as the Super Bowl prediction, Howard. Exactly. exactly. Almost. Almost. Howard's got no credit for the fact that that bet paid off investing in those companies. You know, <laughs> I feel like Howard should have gotten a percentage of those invested funds. Uh, if I did, let's, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Let's not go there, Towner. Let's let's not go there. No investigations. Um, well. I think to your Howard, point, thank Mark. Thank you, thank you for letting Towner and I uh, yeah, indulge in, in one of our hobbies here. <laughs> well, it was a, that was an excellent back and forth, and I think your point about inevitability is right, Mark. It's I think when when people bake too much inevitability into the equation, that's when you have to be worried. Right, and you know, I I don't know. There are lots of different catalysts i think for where we are today the internet is a catalyst Absolutely. for slash technology for for where we are today this is still an entrepreneurial country it's still where the world's best ideas come from it's still the strongest economy in the world it's still the largest economy in the world um I think we just can't get our we just can't get our damn politics in order. We're going through a little health scare right now. We've had it many times as a country, and you know it's uh, we just got to you know get some good test results back and double down and eat some more vegetables, and we're going to be fine. Yeah, one of just I, I keep promising to come back to the present and and leave the past behind for for the podcast but one other note about the present that uh is very different than in the past and this is really a 20th century phenomenon uh towner but washington and lincoln grew up uh and and led the country at a time when the atlantic and pacific oceans mattered a lot more than they do today. And even though, of course, the, the France won the revolution for us and both France and England played in the Civil War, but we were much more able to, to retreat to the continent and deal with our own stuff. What what. The levels of complexity today, Howard mentioned the Internet, which obviously is like the invention of fire and its consequences or the discovery, I should say, of fire. I guess it was already invented in its consequences. But we are just Howard as the globalist on the call. You may want to comment on this. But look, look where we are this week's action energy in in Congress was about Ukraine and Israel. The idea that we can just retreat 
from a position in the world is something that wasn't even true in the revolution and the civil war. But today it it is undeniably impossible. Well, my personal thesis on all this is that a lot of this is dictated by global event. A lot of what we're dealing with domestically is dictated globally. And I mean, if you look back at the period you talked about Towner as being the stable period, we had a we had a singular enemy and the world was a relatively stable place and that you had two superpowers. Obviously, this isn't this isn't original, but I think with the fall of the Soviet Union and I think 9-11 as rallying an event as that was for the country temporarily, I think it was, I think it was obviously very unsettling and destabilizing and led to some of the forever wars that we've become mired in. And I think, I think we don't know who the enemy is today. And And, and we don't, we don't even know where, we are fighting. We had tragically three uh, American service members killed on the Syrian border a couple of weeks ago. I I did not know we had troops there still, and I'll bet ninety nine percent of the country didn't either. Killed by a single drone. Yeah, a little <laughs> by a drone. Right, like yeah. your like your kid could take to the park and play with an asymmetric event it wasn't like we knew where the enemy that's what i'm saying we don't we didn't even know we were at war the american people myself included had lost track that we were at war and that a single drone could kill american soldiers well it's it's part of that asymmetrical world that we live in when you talk about you know, the the time prior that Howard just referenced, it was because we were against, we were opposed to and outside with nation states. And this is has everything to do with non-nation states. Nation states may be enabling, but they are not, uh, they are not ultimately the enemy in most cases. Obviously, you know, we have China and Russia that stand apart from that analysis. But when you look at the Houthis, for example, this is not a nation state. They do not control the Yemeni government. They are given weapons and aid by Iran, and they're the ones causing the shipping issues. When you talk about the soldiers that lost their lives, we still have a contingent in parts of Syria because of ISIS, because of the the remnants of ISIS that continue, and we continue to hit the remnants of ISIS and the remnants of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Al-Qaeda in the in the Syrian peninsula, in the Arabian peninsula, AQAP, a number of other organizations. We keep knocking a head off every now and again. We just took out of essentially the Al-Qaeda uh, offshoot in Iraq again uh, earlier this week using a Ginsu bomb, uh, which is uh, the craziest thing. I don't know, you know, I'm not, I don't want to go way into this, but it's a it's a Hellfire missile that's inert. And it has six swords on the side of it. And we dropped this thing right on his head. And, you know, it was a singular assassination of an Al-Qaeda leader in northern Iraq. I mean, these are the things that we're doing on a day-to-day basis. And because these are non-nation states, they constantly are evolving. They're constantly reforming. Elements are moving to different groups. 
And we have to have folks on the ground there to be able to figure it out, whether by sheer luck or by tactical genius, they figured out finally how to get that drone through. We shoot down drones all the time in Syria. I think the American public is finally seeing us shoot down ballistic missiles, drones, and a number of other types of ordinances in the Red Sea for the first time. But we shoot down stuff all the time. And in this particular case with Tower 33, the only reason they got through and hurt anybody, killed three service members, was because they they followed one of our drones coming back in. So we had just turned off our defenses to allow one of our Reaper drones to come back into the base and land. And it snuck in right behind it. And that's how we got hit. So I wonder, I wonder if uh, in the absence of a clear foreign enemy, we're still looking for an enemy and we've turned within and that's led to the vilification of the other side. And I just wonder if there isn't something more to this, to my little thesis here that I'm making up as we go along, but I'm not making it up. I mean, it's, it's been something I've thought for a long time. Two thoughts on that. Oh, maybe is, is thought number one, because you, you look throughout history and counter reference nine 11 when, when we have a clear threat from an identifiable enemy, we have always as Americans united. And we lack that now to a degree. But that's the second point. It's only to a degree. Putin is a pretty good candidate for an enemy we should all be behind. Really? Uh, Tucker Carlson doesn't think uh, so. That's my point. Everything's great in the Russian The guy, group. the president who is clearly spinning in his grave is Ronald Drake. And how, I know we've talked about it before on this podcast, but this week was another example this morning with Alexei Navalny's death in a a Siberian prison is another reminder. I'm nominating Putin for an enemy we can all get behind and, and oppose. And yet not only Tucker Carlson, but the speaker of your house, Towner, and, and too many other Republicans uh, starting at the top of the ticket there seem I mean, to have that backwards. And China isn't really, a, I mean, they're a, they're an, they're a frenemy. Yeah, yeah. Until they attack Taiwan, it's going to be hard to make them a military foe. Even if they attack Taiwan tomorrow. I mean, do well, you I really? At least on paper, we're aren't we bound to defend? Yeah, but do you really think the American public is no. going to rally behind Amer- putting U.S. troops in harm's way and defending well, Taiwan? I don't think so. Not if we can roll it ahead a couple of years till we start making chips domestically. It's all about computer chips. But right now we need them from Taiwan. Anyway, it's uh, heavy stuff. Back home. Meanwhile, back home, Howard, you, you yeah. had such an orderly, organized agenda. I know. But, then you but, invited me and Towner to talk. <laughs> yeah, but we, we had to let it go because it was... Uh, because as usual, Turner and I provided scintillating historical oh, insight. But it's President's Weekend, and it is a good time to step back and give yeah. it some actual meaning and put 
try to put this all in in context because well i i am doing something that i did not do during his presidency i i admit i am saluting ronald reagan today on president's week yeah i you were definitely walking around with the no nukes t-shirt and yeah 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 i i can i'll wear it to the next podcast in new hampshire at some or vermont at some point So Seabrook, was that the place? So <laughs> yeah. To the present, Tom Swazi won the third district in New York this week, retaking his old seat in the wake of the uh expulsion of former representative and freak of nature, George <laughs> Santos. Tanner, what do you make of that loss it was supposed to be hotly contested there was a snowstorm people are saying that impacted the margin but the polling showed swazi ahead by a point he won by eight Mm -hmm. what do you make of of that defeat yeah i think i think republicans have to be very worried about that i think i think the outcome is so i mean if you generally think historically Long Island, you think, all right, we don't stand much of a chance. The way the dis- that particular district is drawn, I mean, it's, uh, you know, Pete King obviously held a, a Republican that held a Long Island district, but it was a little further east. Uh, that district in particular has generally been Democratic uh, because it is close enough to the city. But Nassau County has flipped uh, Republican quite substantially over a period of time to the point where I believe every countywide elected official in Nassau County is a Republican at this point. And yep. so the question was, which historical trend continues the long term, which is Democrats generally control that district or the short term, which is Republicans are making strong advances in Nassau County. And obviously we saw, we saw what the, the net result was. Um, this portends a, a bad election cycle theoretically for Republicans, but, but I think it was almost assumed that it was going to be a bad election cycle for Republicans in New York uh, because of redistricting, because, because Democrats are going to, in fact, in the last 24 hours, have gotten the bulk of, of the map pr- proposed. And, you know, we're looking it's at mostly like, a pretty of, neutral map. It was pretty neutral. I mean, Democrats have to be largely unhappy about that. And I don't know if the legislature is going to approve it in New York, to be quite honest, because they can't be pleased with the fact that they may only under that map pick up two seats rather than, you know, four. Uh, which and they look, sort that's of- where the House majority is won or lost. But and it was literally won in New York. And so it's a bad result for the Republicans as far as control of the House. But I would argue it's also a bad result for Republicans nationally. It's a bad result for Trump. It's a bad result vis-a-vis the continuing issue of Dobbs and Roe and what the court did. And it's an indictment of Donald Trump. And yeah. no. I- I guess I, I have to laugh when you say it's an indictment of Donald Trump. But uh, we're 91 counts into that. Well, oh, we'll just add it to the list, but, Mark. But the yeah. Republican didn't really run with Trump personally. I mean, here's how you should look at special elections, generally speaking, and in relatively swing districts, but districts that where no party is up by more than five points typically in a in a polling cycle. You should look at it in terms of the fact that the line gets set initially. I'm going to compare this to sports betting. 
And then every Republican in the country talks themselves into the fact that they are going to win. Every Democrat says, oh, boy, we're going to lose the special election. (laughs) And so the line shifts over time. And so what went from a maybe it was a D plus five line, you know, all of a sudden became like a D plus one with some hope that it could be an R plus one. And the the money pours in from the Republican side, if you're talking about a betting line, and it shifts the line over time. Vegas has got to sit there and recalculate their odds going, what are we missing here? Everybody keeps betting on the Republicans. And then the event happens. The election happens. The, the game is played. And sure enough, Democrats win. And they win by a margin that probably was close enough to the original line betting line. And everybody goes, oh, wow, we just talked ourselves into the potential of victory. Republicans do it all the time. I don't I don't know where Republicans gain all this optimism from when it comes to an election cycle. I don't know where the pessimism comes from from Democrats when it comes to a special election, but it always happens. It's happened for 20 years. Well, I'd like to know when the Republicans are going to stop shooting themselves in the foot towner because that's what seems to be happening. It's now Trump won in 2016 but- and since then Basically, but but I mean, Swazi had to start embracing the issues that the Republican candidate was talking about in that race. He did a a Kathy Hochul, his opponent in the governor's election cycle. He switched. Kathy Hochul had to start discussing crime in New York City because uh, because Zeldin, Lee Zeldin, who was running against her for governor, was like hammering the issue over and over. And we all thought, oh, shoot, Zeldin may actually win this this governorship in New York. Obviously, he didn't. He got smoked by Kathy Hochul. Then in this race, the Republicans hammering immigration and Swazi's like, I'm going to lose this thing. And the Democrats freak out. And so Swazi starts talking about immigration and how Biden's got to do something about it. And he ends up winning. Same same dang race over and over again. If you replace, uh, you know, immigration with crime issues. I don't know that Democrats feel like they won this election coming out. They love the results. But like, again, Republicans have forced them on an issue to get involved in a in a battle they didn't want to get involved in. Mark. Well, I think the good news for the Democrats is is twofold. We won. That's hard for Democrats to accept. We're in the hand wringing phase of our party. But we did actually win. And it it is a consequential win because I I lost track of the arithmetic with all the uh, retirements but are we down to one vote in the house towner two because scalise is back so we'll scalise is back okay but that big big difference between three and two so it it is a consequential victory secondly i i think to your point towner it, it is encouraging to me that we were able to talk about immigration and win, that we were able to talk about the border and win, that we didn't hide from it. We, in fact, hung a lantern on it, as Bobby Kennedy said, you should do with your problem. And and we came out uh, more than a handful of uh, points ahead. So it, it was a good day for Democrats, and and we should take, a, take the weekend off from hand at least 
But the reason that both sides, I think, the reason we're wringing our hands and the reason that Howard's asking you when you're going to stop shooting yourselves in, in the foot is that everything is about the top of the ticket. This is not being seen as what it in fact was, which is a special election in a district on Long Island with its own dynamic and its own issues. All politics is local after all. Biden and Trump were on the ballot as far as everybody was concerned, at least everybody meaning our pundit class here, not people who are just working for a living and figuring out what to do with their weekend. but. In the Biden v. Trump election that was held on Long Island in a snowstorm, Biden won. (laughs) And that's a a good omen for November, which is a thousand years away. And none of this will matter by the time we get there. Right. And, you know, I mean, when you look at the national map, Republicans should lose the House. I mean, just based on redistricting alone. But as we talked about in New York, the map is pretty neutral. It came out this week and they really need a couple more seats out of it. In North Carolina, Republicans are redrawing that map. They're going to pick up probably four seats. And then Republicans are just bleeding districts across the southeastern United States. So mostly due to to uh, voting rights at court cases. So you're going to have an extra majority minority district that is mandated in Louisiana. It's going to be an extra district in Alabama. These are all going to be Democratic districts. And so Democrats are planting themselves in select places in southeastern United States, which has typically been very heavily uh, GOP, will go for Trump very heavily, uh, generally speaking. And uh, and but Democrats are going to win the the you know, we don't have every 10 years redistricting anymore. We have every 10 years massive redistricting and then every two years skirmishes of redistricting that in such a close Congress actually mean something. And so we're going to be in a situation where Democrats are going to have the upper hand just on on the seats that are in play for this election cycle. In the House. All right. Well, we're going to let you have the last word, Towner, um, since okay. our podcast parents insist that we stay between <laughs> 30 and 40 minutes, which is where we are. But uh, awesome discussion. Interesting weekend to take a step back and and think about where we are. So really good perspective. And we will be back next week. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.